Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. Hey Terry, how's it going? Going fine, Yoda. How are you? Doing good. You know, it's, it's been a, a couple of weeks at least since we've been able to meet. We've both been busy with what's going on with our dissertations and when we're planning on getting them submitted. You know, busy time. Yes, it is. I think I told you that I had switched tracks and extended my date, right? Yes, yes. So you're looking at the on-time submission for January. Yeah. And, which is on time. That's great. Yeah, and I switched to track one as well. Uh, we we have a Yiddish term for those who try to take on more than they can do, which is Meshugana, <laughs> which is just like crazy. Um <laughs> And I think someone has to be Meshugana to try to do the dissertation track early. I mean, I remember Lauren, our program director, said, what, 1% of people do it early? Well, if I had started on track one, I think I would have finished early. But, mm. but what happened is I, start, I, swear, I said, I'll go ahead and do it track two, and I still could have done this. But when I started down the track two path, I'm suddenly trying to stuff everything into this 20,000-word bag. And yeah. it just – I had 50,000 words to stuff into a 20,000-word bag. That's – there's a word for that. It's called oblivion. Some of, some of our listeners may know what that is. I won't go into it. But in any case, that was my problem. And I kept well, bumping up against – Huh? You're very verbose, so. <laughs> well, I'm getting better. The paper's actually tightening up and getting – simplified and clarified pretty nicely but we digress we wanted to talk about the jewish holidays of this month and i think you wanted to start with rosh hashanah yeah that seemed like a fitting start you know because it's the beginning of the calendar year for the jewish calendar not the religious year but the calendar year that's 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 a fun thing right there um in in torah you see it says in the first month you shall do passover or pesach and that's the beginning of our spiritual year but we have a calendar year that begins with the month of tishrei um, that's the Babylonian name for it. So we call it the seventh month. And that's right now-ish, depending on what year someone's listening to this. Right. And we start that with Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah <clears throat> simply means the head of the year. And so that one is very fascinating. Um, it's the only holiday in the Jewish calendar that has two days celebrated, both in Israel and in the diaspora. All the other holidays, if there's two days in the diaspora, it's one day in Israel. I so see. that one, it's the Israelis get to go through as much as I get to go through. So there's this, we're equal in that regard, you know. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Ashley Blake. He's an Orthodox Jew that's a comedian. And so he shows up on TV, but he doesn't watch TV. And he's he's a Great guy. Ashley would like to YouTube him and see some of his videos because he talks about being what's called Meshuganafrum, which is crazy observant. And he's a typical black hatter, so he's got his fedora and he's dressed in black and white. A little more firm than I am in that regard. Um, but he has a series of videos that are great ones. I recommend watching the one regarding Christmas because he tries to explain Jewish holidays, he said a lot of people try to equivalent Jewish holidays to Christmas, and that's entirely not true. But <laughs> yeah, I, can, I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> he can give you this great picture of all these crazy things you have to deal with for the holidays. All right. That's one I recommend that you take a look at, Sam, for our listeners. All right, what's his name again? Idea. Uh, Ashley Blake. A-S-H-L-E-Y? Yep. B-L-I-K-E, Ashley Blake. Okay, yes. all right. Got it. And he does one on Christmas. It's like I think it's like two or three minutes long, but yeah. it's a great comedic look into the differences between Christian holidays and Jewish holidays in a nutshell. And he can do justice on all the crazy rules we have for holidays. So I'm not going to delve too much into that. But I wanted uh, to. I took a look at the calendar. I mean, when we when you set the agenda for us to talk through this session around the holidays, I took a look at. Those three holidays that, are, that I know of that are happening, the Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, right? It's the third one? Yeah. Uh, I, I took a look at those, and I was trying to see what Christians could relate to. And I think the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Sukkot, right? Yes, also known as the Feast of Booths. 
Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. That one. Uh, the word booth means sukkah. Got it. That one we kind of related to, or at least I could identify that one with the scripture pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. In the New Testament. Yeah. So, Rosh Hashanah is its its thing, and it says in the first and seventh months to do these things. And then we have Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which is the 10th of Tishrei, so the 10th of the month. So we have these 10 days of awe, or these 10 days of repentance in between. Mm-hmm. And then just a couple days later, we start Sukkos. And so mm-hmm. since I live in the diaspora, I've got two days of what's called Yom Tov, which are like holy good days, which we treat almost like a Shabbat. The only thing I can do that's different is I'm allowed to cook using a pre-existing flame, and I'm allowed to carry in public. Since I live in an Eruv, I can carry in public anyways, but that's those are technicalities for another time. Right. When I, was looking of, at, when I was looking at it on the calendar, I could tell that there were spans of days, but what you could do during those spans of days varied a little. Some days yes. you could do any work at all. Some days you could do some very limited work, and then you'd go back to doing no work at all. It was, it was fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so, for example, at the end of Sukkos, we have in the Daspar two-day holiday of Shemini Atzeres is day one, and Simchas Torah is day two, which is the rejoicing of the Torah. And that's when we finish the Torah, and so we'll parade it around, and then we'll wrap it back up, and it's this, it's this beautiful thing. But those are two days of Yom Tov as well. So between the beginning of Sukkos and the end with Shemini Atzeres, we have what's called Chol HaMoed, which are intermediate days. And those are festive days that we're supposed to treat it like it's a holiday. If we can go on vacation, we do. But we don't have the same holiday restrictions. So, for example, if I have to go to work in order not to lose money in order to make a living, I'm allowed to do that. But what I'm allowed to do at work is adjusted because I have to take it easy. I have to remember this is a festive day. And if I were to go overboard, well, then it's the same as if I didn't recognize a holiday at all. So that's why I'm recording today because tonight I'll be MIA for, you know, about eight, nine days. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you picked this day because it's a good day for me. I'm home alone. Uh, Peggy's in Georgia visiting family, so yeah, uh, it's easy to fit it into my schedule, uh, and it didn't disrupt anything. I'm writing, of course, but it didn't disrupt any of that. That's good. That's good. So I guess kind of rewinding back to that first part, as we look back to the days we've already passed, Rosh Hashanah. Right. There's a lot to it. Head of the year. What I thought was really fascinating that I wanted to share with you is the Seder nights. And I don't, you know, do you recognize the word Seder? Yes, I do. Probably from Passover, right? Exactly, yeah. I've had Passover Seder several times, actually. Yeah, the the six-hour course, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so the Rosh Hashanah Seder is a lot different than that. And the way it is, is we don't have a Haggadah that we need to go through that retells this intricate story of our deliverance from Egypt. Instead, we have what's called Samani. Samani is Hebrew for sign. Hmm. I'm glad to know that. <laughs> yes. So, like, whenever I'm talking to a Jewish individual, they're like, oh, what's your doctorate? And I was like, ah, it's going to be a doctorate, and my focus is semiotics. And they look at me, and I've learned if I tell them signs, they don't understand, but if I say, oh, Samani, they go, ah. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. That, you know, it's interesting, just as a little aside, uh, my focus in the dissertation has shifted into language a good bit. Yeah, I'm bringing Wittgenstein into it, and of course, Peirce and Daniel Everett, and you know, a lot of good commentators around language. And it's fascinating how a word, two different words, can really mean essentially the same thing, but culturally, we'll only relate to one of them usually. And then we can make the connection between them with a little conversation. But that's that's uh, to quote Dan Everett, he says. Symbols are the original social contract. Yeah. I, I thought that was just a beautiful synopsis of what semiotics is about, or at least language. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, this may int- intrigue you. With Hebrew, it's a picturesque language, right? I can't. So, right? Yeah. Yeah, so everything has multiple meanings. It doesn't, a lot of things don't translate to English very well, like summoning the signs, because it's more complicated than that. For example, if you were to say slow to anger, Right? right? The picture that goes with that is having a very long nose, so it takes a long time for the hot air to come out. 
<laughs> That's pretty good. I gotta say, if Christianity had half the sense of humor that Judaism does, we'd be a better world. <laughs> so, I, I guess that's why I'm sharing with you some money, because it means more than just a sign. It means metaphor sign, in oh, particular. Okay. Because, for example, in the in the morning and in the evening, I recite Shema. I, so I recite two times every day, and it, it says, "Let it be a sign to you." Uh-huh. Let it be a siman. Well, it means more than sign, like a stop sign or something like that. It means this is something that means something more that's going to teach you another thing that you can look into. I see. So, again, we circle back to the levels of meaning, the levels of knowledge and understanding in the Bardas. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So, for example, like my zitzes, you've seen the, the fringes. Um, they're considered a siman. So they're a sign that has an even deeper meaning. Right, right. And, and it's it, just encapsulated in all that. And so it, there's, a, there's an interesting blending of iconics and symbolism that occurs in almost every language. I mean, take oaths and creeds and uh, the statements of faith and articles of faith and these things we express in language. They become iconic in that symbolism because we attach so much depth of meaning that goes beyond just conscious thought. It goes into, uh, we wrap our feelings in them. Like the image, of course, is someone wrapping themselves in the American flag. Uh, that's an iconic symbol. Uh, and, and that blending of symbolism and icon, well, iconography, that's what that is. It's the blending of symbol and icon, image and arbitrary symbol. So anyway, you were talking about the simonim with the Seder? Yeah. So, so the Seder is simply like a set order to the meal. And so instead of telling this story, we play a game. Well, at least the, the Seder I attended, we play a game. I know not every Seder goes like that. There's proper Seders, and those proper Seders, they're valuable. But they'll go through a list of simonim that's found in Torah or found in the whatever they – Masora, or I guess heritage tradition they have. And oh. so they'll go through and they'll say, dates mean this. This means this. This means this. So, for example, you have the head of the month, which is the head of the new year. And so what you typically have is you have a head at your table. You either have, in most places, it would be a lamb's head or a fish head that you eat from their eyes. Yeah. I know, right? And I have recently made the decision to go vegetarian. So I had the head of kosher gummy bears. Okay, there you go. Let me go into that with you a minute. You say you've given up meat and you've gone vegan or vegetarian? Vegetarian. I love my dairy. Ah, yeah, okay. We Peggy and I have pretty much given up meat. Yeah. Uh, we eat just, I get protein from mushrooms and beans, basically, and uh, I'm dropping some weight and feeling better. So it's paying off. Well, that's good. I used to only eat meat once a week because kosher meat is so expensive. Mm. So this this just made a little easier. I love my ice cream. That's the biggest challenge with dairy. But <laughs> within Judaism, meats represents death and dairy represents life. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like I'm more part of a pro-life movement that way. I, what I would miss, I'm kind of like you. I, I want some dairy. I don't care much about drinking milk except for very particular meals like chocolate cake and pancakes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but cheese. I, cheese is second only to chocolate in my world. If I lived in New York, cheese would be the most amazing thing. Yeah. Because there's a lot of Jews there, and so yeah. there's a yeah. lot of kosher cheese options. Yeah. Out of in Portland, we have an eight-ounce brick of cheddar cheese. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Uh, there are shops in this area, it being Florida. There's a far, fairly large Jewish community all over Florida. It's pretty scattered, yeah. but it, it's been clustered around the South Florida Atlantic coast for a long time. But so, that, so there are shops in Orlando, you know, the bigger cities, where I suspect I'd be able to uh, get into those kinds of things. I'm surprised it's that not that way important. Well, I mean, if you think about it, sometimes we have to put out a call to have a tenth man show from the minion so we can dive and pray, you know. Uh -huh. So there's a lot of Jews here. Yeah, we have 12 synagogues. 
but three of them are orthodox. So I see. it really, it's actually not that big of a population here. Like we didn't even have enough business to keep a kosher deli <laughs> open. Oh man. Because you need a lot of people. Yeah, I can imagine, come to think of it. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, we got off track there. I didn't mean to derail you. Oh, it's totally fine. So, for example, um, the Samanim, right? I told you about being the head. And right. the reason we want to be the head is that we're not the rear end this next year. <laughs> you kind of gave me a, a heads up or a prelude, pun intended, that, yeah. that that was kind of part of the meaning of what's going on in this season is a transition into a new year in such a way that you would, uh, at the same time you're atoning for past sins, you're setting the stage for the year to come for blessing. Exactly. And so for Rosh Hashanah, um, I don't know if you know this, but okay, so Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, right? What does that mean to you? Day of Atonement. Um, uh, a day of cleansing, a day of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, com not compensation, but retri not retribution, but making up for transgressions or sins. Got it. So let me give you a little insight to how Orthodox Judaism views it. Okay. Rosh Hashanah is when the heavenly court is in session, mm -hmm. and Satan, which I'm sure that word sounds familiar, um, within Judaism he's an angel. Yeah. And and angels don't have names. It's whoever's fulfilling that role has that title. So right. whoever's, whatever angel's filling the role of Satan at that time is the legal accuser against us. And right. we're being prosecuted against our sins. Right. Are, so we innocent, courts, are, are we innocent until proven guilty? Satan already has a laundry list of everything we've done. <laughs> so what we do is we plead our case in court. And court's in in session during the morning hours both days. And so we're in shul and we're davening from shortly after sunrise to about three or four in the afternoon. And these special prayers we say for repentance of sins and praise of who God is. And then he would judge us and the rest of the world favorably because we believe the whole world is being judged at that time. And so we go to court to represent the collective of humanity. So it's not just the Jewish ethnic race or even the Jewish faith, race issues notwithstanding, it's the entirety of humanity Yes, that's on trial and that the Jewish Orthodox community is interceding for. Eh, I guess that's a way of putting it, yeah. Huh. We're, we're, we're the legal defense fund. <laughs> I, I, that's news to me. I doubt seriously many Christians really know that that's what it's about. Yeah, <clears throat> and so we recognize God's greatness, and that's why so much of it's about praising him. And we acknowledge that we've sinned, and we're asking for compassion and mercy. And we believe that uh, prayer today is sacrifices of the temple, since there's not a temple. And so, during Rosh Hashanah, God's in court. At Yom Kippur, he's writing down the judgment okay. that was made at the end. So he heard our case, 10 days of deliberation, where we're repenting in all different ways and forgiving each other of everything. And then in, on Yom Kippur, God's writing down the judgment. And so we liken ourselves to angels. We have no physical means. We look pure. We look holy. We just went to the mikvah. We have no outstanding obligations to anybody because we took nullification of all vows. We gave to charity. And we're there. And we're in, we're in shul all day long, davening all day long. It's a fast day. And so that's when the judgment's written down. But the judgment is not published to the public until Hoshana Rabbah, which is the last day of Sukkos. I see. Okay, so that's still out in the future. Yeah, but here's the thing. That's not far. Really I mean, it's only a few days, right? Yeah, but here's the thing that you might find particularly fascinating. Rosh Hashanah, <clears throat> both mornings, we have this passionate plea to God, forgive us of our sins, great and merciful king. Right? Yeah. We're, we're begging pretty much. And then that night, we have a festive meal that's full of puns. <laughs> that is strange. <clears throat> yeah, so, so here's the thing. Um, Rabbi Levi, I've told you about him before. Uh -huh. uh, he explained this conundrum, this dichotomy that we seem to have. And he said, 
you have a Porsche. And that's who you are. You are a Porsche, right? You're this amazing creation. And, it, and so you have to acknowledge that while you're paying for this amazing creation, you still have it. Another great comparison is we say a lot of Alvinu Malkinu on Rosh Hashanah, which is Alvinu, our father, Malkinu, our king. So while we're acknowledging God is king, we're recognizing, one, he's our king, and two, he's also our father. So just as you're familiar with this experience, there's this fear and love that goes with having a dad. <laughs> And yeah. if we if we liken him to Heavenly Father, we recognize, yes, he's got to make the right choices and get in trouble. There's disciplinary action, but he's still yeah. our dad and he loves us. And if we're sincere with our apology. So we recognize as our father, he loves us. And that's why we have a festive meal to say, I know that we're being judged right now, but I have complete faith that my dad is going to judge me favorably because he loves me. So much so that we can even sit around and make jokes. We that we act in that faith, and that's right. that's yeah. the catch with faith within Judaism is that faith has to have action. You you can't just say, "Oh, I believe this." You have to act on it. Right, right. Yeah, that's uh, it's for me. That's one of the tragedies of what's happened in the Christian world. Like, I guess I pick on Christianity too much and don't advocate it strongly enough in our conversations. But, well, I, I think when you're picking on Christianity, you're picking on a lot of the modern travails that what postmodernism has done to Christianity. Uh, not it goes back to the beginning of modernity, actually. Uh, okay. You heard me talk about, but yeah. so it's not just a postmodern phenomenon. Its roots go back to the 16th century, and probably, I mean, it, you don't even have to go deeply metaphorical to trace it all the way back. I mean, the first tyranny occurred between Cain and Abel. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's where oppression began. So that seed, that poison, that poison seed in the garden, as it were, was planted then. Uh, but for us to have been so <sighs> surrendered and yielded to it and facilitating it and aiding and abetting it for so long is, I, you know, uh, speaking of a day of atonement, I wonder um I just don't think Christians take that concept of judgment in general. Now, I'm always talking when I do this, when I'm critical, I'm talking about mainstream, institutionalized, corporatized Christianity, okay? Uh, Joel Osteen is like a poster boy. Um, there was a great Babylon Bee about him today. Did you see that? I haven't seen today's, no, but I love reading those articles. Oh, this this one's good. He comes out with his own line of clothing. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's called the sheep's clothing. <laughs> uh, does that include guarantee of salvation? I did read the whole article, I must confess. I just noticed it right before we started our session. So anyway, back to my point. $1,000. Uh, yeah. I, I just hate to see Christianity so co-opted by the culture. Uh, that it has lost its bearing, lost its, lost its way, truth, and life. I mean, the bottom line is you can't find Jesus as the way, truth, and life in most of mainstream institutionalized, corporatized Christianity. Um, don't even get me started about apologetics. That's one of the main topics of my dissertation. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so I, I say this in respect for what you're describing as atonement and what you're describing as taking judgment seriously on a recurring basis. Uh, for us, it's for Christian dogma, it's not now, it, what's the cliche, already but not yet. Judgment isn't, it's already here but not really yet, you know. The real judgment's yeah. yet to come. In the meantime, let's just snicker and let our noses grow, as it were. Um, so, you know, I just find that extremely frustrating, which is why I've repeatedly characterized myself as, yes, absolutely a Christian, but a dissident Christian uh, when that word is taken as in, in its ordinary sense. And, I, and in our conversations, I've learned enough about Judaism to see a great deal of the positive side, um, which is missing 
which is just that's just not reasonable. That Christianity would leave so much behind and separate that is rooted in Christ's own heritage. There, there's reasons for that, historical reasons, um, and it's it's not necessarily Christianity's fault. I mean, the, Judaism made a big effort back in the day to make Christianity different than Judaism. There, there was there's too much murkiness, and too many Jews were choosing to be Christian. They needed to make it clear that it wasn't a sect of Judaism. I say that it was a completely it's, separate faith. Yeah, and so you, you did have a lot of work on behalf of, you know, the Sanhedrin to do that. But then, you know, you also have what Rome did. So And Greece. Yeah. True. But you, you, do, you have to deal with that. It's, there's a lot of history to that division. And I had to deal with that in researching my dissertation and deal with the entire history. I mean, there's a separation, and then we're opponents, and then we're killing each other, and then there's all sorts of drama, and now we're getting to this point where there are still some Christians that come across that have a problem with Jews, but we're getting to a point where more Christians are being more friendly towards Jewish concepts and Jews in general, and the way they're expressing themselves is less of a conversionary technique, and so Jew, some Jews are starting to be more friendly towards them because they, they don't feel as threatened. And I think we're finally recovering <laughs> I mean, um, Arya Kaplan, Robert Arya Kaplan, he died in the 80s, but he made a statement that a couple others made, but it, at the time it was a rare statement, as he believed that Christians were Noahides. And within Judaism, we have what's called Noahides, which are those who follow the laws of Noah, non-Jews who follow the seven laws that God gave to all mankind, and that they'll be in the world to come along with the observant Jews. And he said Christianity and what he's observed in it can be a no-hide faith. It really depends on how that person defines their religious walk. But there, there's work towards a bridge. Yeah, there is. And that's, that's what we're all about. So yeah. at least it's good not to be the only ones out here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want to compare it, Maimonides was very much so against the idea of Christianity and considered idolatry. But, you know, that's a long time ago in a Muslim-controlled territory where the reason he was in a Muslim-controlled territory, and he was a doctor, but the reason he was there was because if you went to a Christian territory, you were converted or killed. Mm, yeah. So uh, different times give you different experiences. Yep. So I, I, I think we're... There, there's a lot with modern Christianity, I get it, I've been down that road, that does not jive or mix well, and there's, there's significant issues. But I think it's part of a longer path or a longer evolution into a peaceful relationship with, so Jews and Christians working together. I think that is more <clears throat> likely to bring about the messianic reign, however we each define it, right. than constant conflict. I would absolutely agree with that. So I guess I'm trying to be optimistic about the current state of Christianity. Well, I'll be cautiously hopeful. I wouldn't go so far as to say optimistic. <laughs> but yeah. I've been just a crusty old guy. What can I say? But, you know, 10 years ago, would I have been able to get my doctorate and be an Orthodox Jew and argue that Christianity could be viewed like a Noahide faith? but we have to be clear on what Christianity believes? I don't think so. Yeah. But I How much today. you said who was the who was the rabbi you said the back in the who died in the eighties that was the advocate for this? Rabbi Arya Kaplan. And I absolutely love his works. He writes in a way that you can actually connect with. He takes complex things and defines it simply without making it too simple. He was one of the first rabbis to make Kabbalah available in English for Orthodox Jews, like reliable Kabbalah, not Kabbalah Center Kabbalah or Madonna. So he did that. He wrote the Handbook of Jewish Thought, which is pretty much the systematic theology of Judaism. Mm. So he did a lot of great works, but he's definitely worth looking into. Did he catch some heat for that view about Christians? I I would be surprised if he did not. 
Yeah. Back when he wrote about Christianity, he also had to condemn Messianic Judaism because it was pretending to be Jewish and then converting Jews. Right, right. right. That's when the Jews for Jesus movement really took off. And so he has a separate book that condemns that. But a lot of people believe that Arya Kaplan died early because God took him from us because he was making too much available for too many people. It's the same what? concept of Enoch. You know, he's taken out of the world so that yeah, yeah. not everything's available. Why would that be a bad thing? If the world knows too much, then can they really have free will? Well, there's a difference between knowledge and power. Yeah, but I, I guess look at the way I look at it this way is within apologetics, both Christian apologetics and Jewish, if there is a field, God is mysterious and God is not here. And we have to have faith. We have evidences, but we don't have proof that God exists, right? Right. And so it requires a certain level of stepping off the plank and knowing that there's something beyond that plank. And the reason for that is so people could choose it. If God was physically here, physically present, people wouldn't choose not to follow God because they would know for a fact what happens if they didn't. Right, right. So if we have too much, if we have too much knowledge, if we become too knowledgeable as a people before our time, sometimes it can cause more harm than good. I mean, yeah, I even think before the Second Great Awakening, Christianity was very intellectual. I don't have kind thoughts about the Second Great Awakening. I turn it into this emotional yeah. mess. Yeah. But maybe there was a reason for that. Well, it's um, it's a good counterweight for scientism. It's not very effective, <laughs> but it, it is a counterweight for scientism. And Lord knows we need that in our day and age. Um, and that's turning out to be a more complicated topic than I thought. And I have discovered, man, the topic, the discussion of scientism in the Christian community is starting to really pop up like whack-a-mole. I mean, it's, I'm seeing books proliferating uh, on the topic of scientism just in the last year. Uh, 2017, 2018, I've seen probably a dozen books come out about it. Makes me feel like, so why am I bothering to write a dissertation? Writing <laughs> <laughs> um, a dissertation because you have a unique audience that may not come across those books. Well, that's true. And I have a unique way of looking at the problem and proposing a solution. Uh, and I'm not seeing that in a lot of books. Most of them uh, end up in a kind of what I would call a namby-pamby kind of, well, we have to do a combination of shrugging our shoulders and holding hands, mm. you know, and I, I don't think either of those is an appropriate response. <laughs> uh, it's not enough action. It's yeah. it's lazy reaction. Uh, and, and like you were saying, in Judaism, faith isn't enough. It has to have action with it, right? Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I've always kind of kicked against that goad. Uh, what is it? Uh, I think it's one of Peter's letters where, or no, it's James. Uh, faith without works is dead, right? Yeah. Uh, most Christians quote that, but they rarely put it in context and take it as seriously as it should be or could be. And I was one of those. I kicked against that goat and said, yeah, well, you know, here's what he really meant. You know, faith saves you, and your works should be the fruit of that, you know, that apology for that passage. Yeah. Uh, I think there's more to it than that. Um, anyway, I'm, I digress here a bit. It's been a good discussion. I'm glad, I'm glad to know these things. I, I would close my only comment in closing, uh, and, of course, I don't want to wrap it up. That's up to you. But in looking into this, uh, just a little. I mean, I just kind of Google doodled it, you know, and ran across, scanned a few topics. But the calendar caught my attention more than anything else. On one hand, one of the most complicated things we've dealt with is the Pardus. Now, the concept of the Pardus is not all that difficult. Layers of meaning, layers of depth of truth, layers of understanding and wisdom. That's not an altogether impossible concept. 
knowing yeah. how to live in those different layers, that's where it gets complicated. But the concept itself is not all that, A, foreign. It lines right up with verse, like Lynn showed. It lines up with a whole lot of Western and Eastern epistemology. So it's not, you know, a difficult concept. It's just a difficult lifestyle. <laughs> Now, yeah, the calendar, as I looked at the Jewish calendar, I had kind of the opposite response. I'm used to a simple Julian or Gregorian kind of calendar, right? <laughs> yeah, there are these lunar things kind of buried in there, and they mark the full and quarter and the moon phases on the, the Julian calendar. But we don't invest any real meaning in that unless you're an astrologist, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking at the Jewish calendar, I'm seeing it's at least as much based on the lunar cycles as it is the solar cycles, correct? Yes, yes. So the Jewish calendar is a solar lunar calendar. Exactly. We follow the moon to define when the new month begins, right? Right. But, there's the but there, Torah says in the spring harvest. Right. And that's the catch, is if we follow just a lunar calendar every year we'd go backwards 11 days yeah and so we'd be like the muslim calendar where you could have ramadan any month of the year but passover has to be in the spring yeah yeah so we every couple of years we add a month in to stay back on track i know that's that, that was one of the first little mind bogglers i stumbled across so it's you don't just have a, a leap year every a leap year with an extra day every fourth year you have like an extra month every two or three years or something weird, right? Yeah. So the pattern, it's, it, I was shocked at this when I found out. If you look at the keys of the, on the piano, the white keys are the normal years and the black I keys saw are the that. years. I saw that diagram. And I yeah. didn't memorize it, but I did see that diagram. You have to go like a pair of keys, two white keys. No, a pair of keys, two white keys, three black keys, two white keys, and a black key, I think, to get through the whole cycle. Yeah, well, you have the, the white keys that pop in between every once in a while. But, yeah, definitely, it's 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 complicated, but it's really cool. And it I think that ties back to the musical end, right? Or, I mean, in our in our sessions with Len Sweet, he's talking about it's not what you see, but it's what you hear. Yep. And we have this music to how the calendar works. Well, that's that's why it caught my attention. I was looking, you know, scanning through pages and looking at images as much as words. And here was this keyboard, or a little mini keyboard of about, I don't know, 18 or 20 keys. And I, they were numbered, and I could see there was a pattern to the numbers, but I didn't dwell on it long enough to unpack it. But here's what kind of struck me as intriguing. You've talked about Kabbalah as, yeah. the, mystic, as the mystical or the mysticism heart of the Jewish faith. Yeah. All right. As I was going through looking at this calendar form and figure and content, all of these, um, what's the, there's um, esoteric Christianity and there's an old ancient based on the Greek figure of Hermes kind of odd off the wall religion. And it has ties in both Judaism and Christianity. I can't, Trismegistus, Hermes Trismegistus was the founder of it. It's fascinating, uh, and it's, it's a really odd kind of bent on things that we have in religion in general, but especially even in Judaism and Christianity. I'll send you a link to it. It was just kind of fascinating. I'll include it in my post about this pod blog. Okay, that'd be really cool. Yeah, I mean, Kabbalah, reliable Kabbalah, is ancient. It dates back to Abraham. Right. I mean, even some of the symbols you see within Kabbalah, like the Hamza, I don't know if you know this, but the Hamza is a very Christian symbol, too. It has strong ties to Christian history. You'd like to refresh me on what the image is? Uh, it's the hand. Oh, the particular formation of the fingers and hand, or just a hand in general? Yeah. Well, it's it's the formation of the fingers and the hand going down. You'll often see an evil eye in it. Um, uh, it yeah, has ties to Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and the Indian faiths. Yeah. Yeah, so, Lynn, I mean, uh, Lynn even talked about that when we were up at Orcas, you remember? Yeah. 
But, you know, it's on all sorts of symbols, too. It's like the Magen David, the Star of David. Yeah. It's not originally a Jewish symbol. It's a symbol that Solomon took on. It wasn't David's symbol. Solomon took it on, and at least according to some Jewish tradition, Solomon took it on, and it was on his signet ring to ward off demons. Hmm. Now, whether that's true or not, it depends on your tradition, I guess. Right, right. But there is definitely a witchcraft origin to the Mach and David, which has been rebranded as the Jewish symbol. Uh, we used to have the menorahs are simple. I mean, for example, the swastika. That swastika means terrible things today. Right. But, you know, in 1920, it meant great things. It has had a, a checkered history, to say the least. I mean, it's supposed to be good luck. All right. The star, the six-pointed star of David, though, that's on the Israeli flag, isn't it? Yes, it is. It was taken on as the modern symbol of Israel. Interesting. The symbol of Israel before the time of Babylon was the menorah. That's, I understood that to be the case, yeah. Speaking of Babylon, this kind of circles back to our conversation about language, but uh, the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, you're talking about too much knowledge, right? Yeah. I've always been, of course, having worked at Wycliffe Bible Translators for 20 years, Bible translation and language have been very important to me, even in philosophy of language as an agnostic. But the, the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, if you peel back the symbolism, there's some kind of kernel of empirical truth there, uh, or at least philosophical truth, I would say. Um, and it just, it was a curse, right? For the humans, yeah. mankind. And the curse was we lost the ability to understand each other, and we had to go out and reinvent language to try to find that understanding back. The curse was never lifted, to my knowledge. So now we have over 7,000 languages in the world, and the biggest problem we have is communication. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I, the more that I've let that kind of sink in, the more I realize that's one monumental curse that we're still under. It is. You know what's really fascinating about this? Um, the Sanhedrin was the high court of Israel when it was uh-huh. in session. In order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be fluent in every language. Every language? Every language that could come into that court, you had to be fluent in it so that you could understand both sides. Well, there had to be at least dozens, if not hundreds, of languages in that yeah. That period originally. Yeah. Uh, Imagine the intellect you'd have to pers- know. You have to know all of Jewish law. You have to know the intricacies of every other religion and every culture. Yeah. And speak the language. Gee, yeah. That would take quite an anointing. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I think that's why, you know, not everybody could qualify. <laughs> well, being a monolingual American idiot, I'd have a hard time dealing with that certainly but we were kind of pushing our time limit here uh, yeah very enlightening conversation that. i've learned a good bit don't know how much of it will stick but uh, there's a lot of intriguing depth to these holidays and the calendar yeah i guess here's one thing you can step away with and i hadn't shared with this just yet but the pomegranate the pomegranate is an amazing fruit. You see it in all sorts of symbolism in Torah, right? We have the pomegranate that's attached mm-hmm. to tassels and all sorts of things. But do you know why? Is it thought to be the original fruit? Maybe, maybe not. I okay. think it is. But the pomegranate, a fully grown pomegranate, contains 613 seeds in it. I knew it had an abundance. I didn't know the number. 613. 613 also happens to be the number of Jewish laws. I thought so. And number had a double meaning, yeah. So I think it's the fruit because it represents all of Torah law and it represents life and death. Yeah. So, and there are some people that believe that the tree of life is also the tree of knowledge of good and evil, just depending on where you ate from. Well, it makes, it kind of resonates as as a three-way harmony. Um, Without a law, how would you know good and evil? 
Yeah. So, but that's something you can walk away with is we have a pomegranate during our Seder for Rosh Hashanah. Uh-huh. Because the seeds are so many, they say, let our blessings be as many as these seeds. I see. And that connects to me in regards to everything I have to do relates to the word called mitzvah, right? We have the 613 mitzvot, which is, it's a complicated word that a lot of people just assume means commandments or laws, but it actually means more than that. It means blessings, connection, and laws. So by observing this, by either doing something or not doing something, not only am I following the law, but I'm enabling a blessing and I'm connecting deeper to God. Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the pomegranate is one of my favorite foods and favorite samanim because of that and how complex it is. Is it in every Seder? It is, um, I don't think it's in every Seder. I know it's definitely in the Rosh Hashanah Seder, like as far as it's the one that you'll find that's prescribed for everybody to do. Uh-huh. But it's I also considered one of the produce of Israel. I don't remember us having one at the Passover Seder, but I might just not be remembering it. Passover Seder plate typically won't have it. It doesn't have, it's not a simon for that, but somebody may serve it. Uh. But pomegranates are produce of Israel. We have five produce of Israel that have their own special blessings that we have to say before and afterwards. And pomegranates is known to be naturally growing in Israel. So I think that's fascinating too. It is. It is absolutely. Well, I have an idea for another topic. <clears throat> yeah. It's only at best indirectly related to this, but the number three uh, yeah. is powerful in my own life. And the yeah. more, I, of course, it's obviously powerful. Powerful in Christianity. It's obviously powerful in purse. It's been powerful in science. Newton had three laws. You know, it, it just had three dimensions to space. In fact, if you think about the cosmology the way I do, I think of there being three dimensions of space, three dimensions of time, and three dimensions of consciousness. That is the cosmos. Nine dimensions and three sets of three. But that's okay. just because I may just be because I'm obsessive and fixated. But I know that there's the mathematics that can work with that. But all of that to say... A topic I'd like for us to look into is the importance of that particular number three. Uh, it's powers, it's multiples, it's sums, you know, all the numerology or mathematics around it, but especially from the point of view of mystical Kabbalah. That's definitely a great topic. I mean, you're talking about Jamatra there, which is Jewish number math and how it connects <laughs> to words and everything, because we take it seriously. We don't eat nuts during Rosh Hashanah because... The numerical value of the Hebrew word for nuts is the same as the numerical value for the Hebrew word of sin. So there's definitely some ties there, and that's cosmic. I think what you'll want to do to prep for that one, and this gives our readers a heads up, or I mean listeners, is look up two to the fifth power. Okay. Because you're going to find that that is very essential within Kabbalah to understand it. It's something I don't even know how to visualize. Two to the fifth power? Yeah, and make okay. it a shape. Make it a sort of polygon. That's so don't just do the math, but think of it more geometrically, you're saying. Yeah, in a three-dimensional plane. Okay, all right. It, it's, it'll definitely help with that conversation, but it sounds like we have a session on numbers and geometry and what it all means coming up. Okay. Focusing specifically on the number three. But yes. two to the fifth, I looked at it. You're talking about the exponent five over the base two, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. That's 32. I'll, I'll give that a look. Ah, 32. So, yeah, take a look at it. Um, the other thing you might want to look into is 18. Because if we're talking about three, you're going to want to know about those two as well. Well, I can't make a direct connection from the 2 to the 5th and the 32 to the 3 other than the 3 being the first digit, and that's pretty slim. But what was the other one? 18. 18 has got 3 written all over it. 
Yes, it does. Three times six, six is two times three. I mean, you know, and yeah, two times two, times two times right? Nine. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's got three written all over it. One of the reasons it's kind of always been in the back of my mind and got me looking at the Jewish calendar, I was born on June 21st, first day of summer, uh-huh. 1949, at 3.33 in the afternoon on the uh-huh. third day of the week in the third week of the month. And I looked it up wow. on a Jewish calendar. And yeah. And it's 24th day of the third month in 1949. Huh. Uh, which is, what's that month? It starts with an S, the third month on the Jewish calendar. Um, you're, you're making me really dig dip the back of my head here. <laughs> I think I have it in a tab here. Um I should know this. I just happened to be in a uh, sukkah. Sivan. S-I-L-V-A-N. Right? Sivan. 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 Oh, well. Yeah. Well, in 1949, the 21st, or 21st of June, 24th of Sivan was Tuesday, uh, and the year was 5709. Now, the 24th is divisible by three. It's three times eight, which is two cubed. Uh, the year 5709 is divisible by 12, by three. Um, the third day of the week. Yeah, that's the third day of the week, too. Uh, and it's the third month of the year on the Jewish calendar. So. Yeah, three definitely has connections. Um, we even have a special meaning for three, so. Well, well let's get into all that. I, I really just wanted to bring it up and park it for another session. Yeah, sure thing. So for our listeners, again, I'll be posting my blog response after COG, which is holiday, is done. And then we'll probably have our next um, podcast session recording after that. I mean, that's about two weeks. So Sounds like a plan to me. Great fun, uh, you Thank you, Terry. I hope that you have a wonderful holiday. Maybe you get to see a bunch of sukkahs set up. So what's the right greeting or blessing for Sukkos? Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Which is simply happy holiday. Okay. All right. All right, then. Uh, Great you can chatting. also get away with Shana Tova, which is Happy New Year. Ah, okay. All right. Good Hi. to know. Looking yeah. forward to the next one. Definitely. We'll talk later. Thank you, brother. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Send questions, comments, and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com. Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yidbrick and Semiocity that answers Semitic questions via semiotic analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobites is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin.